on today's episode, predicting future injuries and early detection with Eric Hegedus. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Eric Hegedus is quickly turning into a very good friend of the podcast. He is a professor, a physical therapist, clinician scientist, and researcher. Last time he was on the podcast was episode 186. The title of the podcast was a comprehensive look at return to running when we looked at his uh, clinical commentary publication that he released in uh, last year, 2021. And talked about uh, training impulse, when cross-training and overall training volumes. Very, very knowledgeable. We just went back and forth talking about a whole bunch of concepts. Um, very like-minded, which I try and get people who voice different type of opinions, but Eric is so well-educated on his field and I follow a lot of his work and so we kind of come to the same conclusions because I agree with everything that he releases. <laughs> so today is looking at injury prediction. And even just last time he was on the podcast, he said, oh, when you want to have me back on, let's talk about predicting injury. And I thought that's a fantastic idea. And he sent me a few publications. Uh, The paper that we're going to discuss today is about physical performance tests. And if we can do any physical performance tests to predict injury or increase the correlation of future injury, those types of things, We delve into it like we were just bouncing back and forth with ideas and concepts and even after the recording we just kept talking for another 15 minutes or so about injuries and uh, you can tell he is super passionate, just as passionate as I am about these particular topics and trying to reach runners and try and dispel a lot of misconceptions and try and disseminate a lot of research because it can be really convoluted, really confusing and just trying to decipher and put in a clear message that runners can understand. He's right on board with that. Always love talking to him. He'll definitely be on the podcast again. (laughs) And let's dive into round two. Eric Hegedus, welcome back to the Run Smarter Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure to be back. I'm I'm, uh, honored to to be a a repeat offender, so to speak. (laughs) We had a very nice conversation us back and forth last time you were on. So uh, looking forward to today. Your paper, let me I've got the title here, Physical Performance Tests Predict Injury in National Collegiate Athletic Association Athletes, a three-season uh, a three-season prospective cohort study. Um, we've already 
I'll probably put in the intro uh, your credentials because we've already heard it on the first episode that you're on, episode 186 I have down here. The title was A Comprehensive Look at Return to Running, so people are already familiar with you. So let's dive in. What was the the idea and the aim behind this paper in particular? Well, so when I um, uh, thought about doing this paper, there was a screening tool called the functional movement screen, which is which is well known worldwide, but which everyone was accepting at face value. So in other words, if you get a certain score on this, you're going to get injured. And if you don't, you know, if you do better than that certain score, you're not going to get injured. And I thought that was that life is rarely that simple. And so what I wanted to do was investigate these physical performance tests and physical performance tests are just do a deep squat for me, do a one-legged deep squat for me, do a, a, a plank and see how long you can hold it. Those are physical performance tests. And I wanted to see, and the FMS is composed of physical performance tests. So I wanted to challenge that thought process. And what I really thought I was going to find was that those tests were absolutely worthless. But that's why you do the research, because it turns out they weren't worthless. Okay. Yeah. And so you're, you're hoping to find or test out the available screening tools that you had, or did you want to try um, a screening tool method that was different from the conventional? Well, I, wanted to, I wanted to start from scratch, because as, as, as any good scientist does, there was a lot of literature coming around at that time challenging the original assumptions of the FMS, that, that being that it actually predicted injury, because the only study that said it predicted injury at that time was a study done by the authors of the FMS tool, right? So it's not an unbiased study. Uh, it doesn't mm. mean they did anything untoward. It just means it's not an unbiased study when you've developed the tool. So I really just started from scratch again by saying, okay, let me do a systematic review. And by the way, after I started doing the systematic review, I thought, boy, let's make a PhD out of this. And so I did. But uh, I started doing the systematic review of every special test that was out there for the lower extremity, hip, knee, foot, ankle, to see, do we have any information about any of them being associated with injury? And what I found out was there was one test in one study that said it sort of kind of was associated with injury. So then it gave me license to be creative. So what I did was meet with track and field coaches, um, lacrosse coaches, um, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, exercise physiologists. And I said, what tests do you think important? What, what constructs do we want to be able to capture? And we can talk about what constructs are, but what basically what things do you want to capture, like flexibility? that you think are important. And uh, so we created a list of them, piloted that list, and then got down to a group we thought we could test. How many tests did you end up coming up with in the end? Uh, let's see. I want to say there were probably 15 tests at the end because we couldn't, mm. you know, with no guidance from the literature, we were, we were guessing and we, we didn't want to leave anything out that was important. 
and the athletes that you decided to put these tests through, they were just all collegiate athletes uh, across the spectrum. So track and field, sports, uh, everything like that. They were uh, no no American football players, um, but but uh, soccer players, you know, as as we call football in the U.S. Um, basketball players, male and female, and about half of them were distance athletes. So that's both a strength and a, and a weakness, right? Um, you have to be careful about applying this to every athlete. And it might have been better in retrospect to get only distance athletes than I could have made firm conclusions about athletes. But the strength of it is we had some positive findings with overuse injury in a group of athletes across the spectrum. A large portion of those were running athletes. So it became very appropriate to generalize the findings to, to distance athletes, to runners. Right. And so how many people did you end up recruiting and like, what was, how was the study designed? So for three years, um, in the preseason, and this was conventional methodology at the time and, and toward the end here, I'm sure we'll get talking about why this isn't good methodology now. And, and it sounds like, Oh, well, how long ago did you do this? This was like, 2012 through 2015 so that's already too long ago um, <laughs> you know what I mean things just progress yeah. rapidly and so and so at that time what we did was was test every athlete in the preseason and track their injuries all season long and at the end of each season we would correlate our results of our tests with who got injured and who didn't get injured okay and uh, while I was having a look at the paper, it seemed like all of the tests, all of these physical functional uh, performance tests that you put in there were kind of grouped into s sort of subcategories. You had the right. ac active motion, you had power, you had hip stability, you had flexibility, and then you had motion control. And it's nice that you do kind of put them into these pockets. I, I think, you know, people kind of get flexibility, but... For things like active motion, what sort of tests, like how, what would you, what do you mean when we categorize them into to active motion tests? Oh yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And so active motion was, we did an inline lunge. That's just standing with your foot on a starting line and lunging forward as far as you can. And we would measure how far people could lunge. And then we would compare that to the other leg. So there was some symmetry testing involved there. And the other thing in active motion was a lateral lunge. So what we were really testing is sort of your real life hip mobility in essence. Mm. Okay. Um, hip stability, would, would it just be like single leg functional sort of tests and seeing what the control is like through the hips? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's also a great question. That's actually the motor control group. When you do a full squat and a single leg squat to see how pure your movement is there. So in other words, do, do you have enough strength to keep your leg in a relative line as you do a single leg squat? That relative line means the knee is lined up with the ankle. You know, you're not deviating one way or the other. And we would also look at when we ask you to do a single leg or a double leg squat, did you have the strength and mobility to complete that task? Or did you simply bend forward at the waist? 
which is an, a compensatory motion if you don't have good hip mobility. So that was that was sort of the motor control group. Hip stability was side plank hip abduction, so legs scissoring away from center, and then side plank hip adduction, which was leg propped up on a chair and the leg was scissoring toward the center. So they were just really a side plank exercise with some hip motion, so it was a measure of hip strength or hip stability. Okay. So a lot of this is kind of looking for asymmetry and in your motion, in your your ranged kind of activities. Flexibility we can kind of get. Power, is that just looking at a single performance like jumping mm -hmm. or landing mm -hmm. or um, just over like one or a couple of repetitions? It was. Yes, exactly correct. It was a triple hop and a vertical jump. Those were the things that were measured to get that power construct, that ability to move quickly and and strongly. Hmm. Well, what I'm when I'm looking at like these sort of tests, because um, what I do with my athletes is say like you know how much can they squat compared to their body weight, or how much can they like do a knee extension or a hamstring curl compared to their mm -hmm. percentage of their body weight or those particular things and then compared to the other side where they're really pushing themselves to kind of physical limits or to capacity or mm -hmm. um, endurance, challenging that endurance. Was there anything like that, any sort of tests involved in in, in, in these? these? Yeah, no, we, we, um, we stuck to body weight uh, tests because... Uh, we thought if these are going to be useful, the average field side or court side coach without access to a weight room perhaps just wanted to be able to screen athletes and see did we feel like they were going to be injured or did they need to get on a preseason lifting and movement program uh, or not. And so these were all body weight exercises that, that we tested with our athletes once again just to see if any coach in the world could do them, whether they were in middle school or elementary school, were they actually useful to those coaches or should we not tell them to be doing those things? Mm. So very easy to administer and very like if you had, if you somehow f um, found some findings that were linked to injury, it could be very easy to test and, um, right. and, and test yeah. large groups of people. So, so, so if you're a coach and you have a team of 45 athletes, or 65 athletes, sometimes like track and field has, can you test all 65 in a day? And and so mm. the efficiency of them was the strength of them. But doing what you were doing by having them do like sort of maybe one repetition max and those sorts of things, um, a, a good way to go also, we just didn't think every coach had that field side or court side. Yeah. And then the athlete itself would need to be very proficient with those particular movements. You'd need yeah. to have like, you can't test a one, one rep max squat for everyone. Cause you know, that's going to be very dangerous for someone to do unless they're very experienced in the gym. So you want to consider their safety as well. And in the study, you mentioned that you combined the findings of their tests with known risk factors um, which being age, BMI, gender, um, excessive flexibility and their past history of injury. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, can you explain exactly how that process works? Like the, 
are you combining all of those tests and then sort of correlating with other things that you know that might be linked to injury and seeing what the results show? Sure, sure. Um, and this is very traditional methodology, and I won't I won't bore the listeners. But in essence, you test each of those factors, each of the new factors that we developed by themselves. But then you want to see, on a grander scale, do they actually add anything to what we already know about injury? So, in other words, there there are. The one constant about what causes injury is that you had an injury in the past. So if you've had one, you're going to get another one. And same with surgery. If you've had surgery, you're going to get another surgery, and you're going to get another injury after that surgery. There's there's pretty good data to support those things. But there's also some studies that said sometimes gender is a factor, sometimes age is a factor, sometimes body mass index is a factor, and, and sometimes being hypermobile was a factor. Not all the time. But we wanted to take those established sorts of things that were correlated with injury and see if we added our new variables and stuck them in the same formula, did any of the new variables matter at all? Or was it actually adding nothing to the literature? So in other words, could you just stick with past injury and age and gender and hypermobility and body mass index and say, yeah, the, the field test the the performance tests don't add anything. So that's a very important step to take in the methodology is make sure that they matter at all on the grand scale of things. And so it turned out that they did, which was surprising. Yeah, let's dive into the results. Um, before just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Just quickly, um, how many uh, athletes did end up being included within this study? So how big was that sample size? And yeah, let's, let's delve into the results. Sure. So 360 athletes tested over three years. So it's a it's a fairly sizable study. Um, could you argue that maybe we should have tested thousands of athletes? Yeah, maybe, uh, but that would have that would have taken a lot longer than I had for a PhD, quite frankly. So, we didn't, <laughs> <laughs> but we thought we thought that was a fairly good sample size. Your time um, is valuable, Eric. Yes, yes, that's right. And so spending six years getting a PhD with uh, a wife and two young kids was was not negotiable for me. Um, <laughs> and so what, then we did the analysis three different ways because um, a lot of studies have shown that your results depend on how you define injury. So in other words, some people say, well, I'll give a very a very easy example. A lot of runners get pain after they run or compete. Many of them go out the next day and run. So they haven't missed training and they've been able to compete, but they are in pain. So is that an injury or not an injury? Or is it only an injury if you miss an event or miss training? Or is getting the flu because you've overtrained an injury or not an injury? Is the illness count in that? So, so what we did was say, okay, we're going to say injury in the largest sense. We're going to do the analysis with that as the final outcome. We're going to do a second analysis with traumatic injury. So that would be a collision or a fall or 
And for those of you who are distance athletes, you'll be thinking, well, I don't really ever collide with anything. But you can go running on a trail and get an ankle sprain because you stepped on a root or stepped in a hole that you didn't see or or hurt the bottom of your foot because you stepped on a rock. We called that a traumatic injury. And then the other ones were the non-traumatic or the overuse injuries. And for the running population, since that's the most common one, that was that was of special interest to us. Absolutely. And so what did, once you combine all these known risk factors and these physical performance tests in preseason, uh, what did the results come to? Well, see, so the, the, the results were, um, were good and exciting, but then all of a sudden they got super exciting because remember I said that the one thing that we know about injury is if you've had one previously, you're going to get one again. We were certain of that from the literature. More than one study in lots of athletes in more than one sport have said, if you've had an injury in the past, you're going to have another injury. Well, when we looked at non-traumatic injuries and included the variable of motor control, so this is your ability to move well in a single leg squat and double leg squat, the previous injury disappeared as a factor that was associated with injury. So that's a big deal because what it means is when we say previous injury is associated with getting injured again, we don't know why that is. So is it because you didn't rehab well enough and that's why you got injured again? Did you permanently damage a tissue that never recovers and that's why you get injured again? Are you psychologically affected by that injury so that you move differently and that's why you're injured again. We really don't know why past injury predicts a future injury. Um, but the interesting thing was, is it became a non-factor in these overuse injuries when motor control was studied. So I thought that such a simple test to eliminate past injury was, was a rather remarkable finding. Hmm. Yeah. And, Anything else? Any other of those very exciting findings? Well, so there there was another there were some other correlations with with injury in general, but I I'm I'm not sure if I if I trust those findings because um, active motion and hip stability were associated with injury in general. When we talk about injury in general, we're talking about overuse injuries and collision injuries or traumatic injuries, right? So the assumption there would then be that if you have bad active motion and poor hip stability, that you're going to run into a player on a field six months from now and get injured. And I don't think that's a very realistic conclusion. I think to, so I think it was a, an incidental finding. I was more excited about overuse injuries because of our cohort, which was mostly runners. Um, mm. and, and, and the fact that a, a simple test is something that you might want to use as a tool to say, well, how are they moving? Maybe that's important. Mm. And so if someone scored quite low in these motion, con uh, the motor control tests, mm -hmm. so you're looking at double leg squat and you're looking at single leg squat and how effective they are moving through that movement. Um, it didn't matter whether you were injured in the past or how many times you've been injured in the past 
the people that had that poor control, poor motor control, got injured at the same rate. Is that right? They were more likely to get injured, actually. Okay. Yeah. Right. More likely to get injured if they scored hadn't poorly. had an injury? Um, yeah. The, the, it didn't matter whether they had injury or didn't have injury. So it, yeah. whether or not they had an injury became became unimportant. Irrelevant. Yeah, it mm. became irrelevant because their because their motor control was so poor that that was the overwhelming factor. Okay, and since we're now honing in on this particular finding, can we maybe go into a bit more detail about the squat, about the double leg and single leg squat for the motor control? So you said it was body weight. Mm-hmm. Exactly what particular movements or uh, what qualities were you looking for mm. that described where they scored high or scored low on that test? Yeah, so this is great. If you have people out there who want to test themselves in front of a mirror or coaches out there that want to test their athletes, um, we used a, a, a very qualitative method of qualitative in the sense that it wasn't a specific number that had you score good or bad. Um, what had you score good or bad was your quality of movement. So in other words, we would have people for the double leg squat, we would have them stand feet shoulder width apart and hands right up over their head, uh, like they're signaling goal or an American football touchdown. So parallel arms Mm -hmm. straight overhead. And then, and then we would have them squat and we would see, could they keep good lower extremity alignment or did their knees either go outward or inward? Most often the fault was the knees came to the midline. So the knees would start to come together in the middle and touch almost. Um, and there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that, right? And as, and as, a, as somebody working with athletes, your next step after that screen would be to investigate why that is. So you can have poor ankle mobility and that can cause you to move poorly or you can have poor hip strength and that can cause you to move poorly or... You can just have had an injury in the past and your body has forgotten how to coordinate all the segments of the lower extremity as it moves at the same time. And so it can be any one of those causes and your job is to investigate further. My job as a, as a physiotherapist is to investigate further to see why it is that your movement quality is poor. So that was the double leg squat. Uh, the other thing you could do wrong in the double leg squat is we would see people who actually would bend very little at the ankles and the knees, but would simply flex their spine forward in an attempt to get lower. Uh, We also saw that as a movement fault, a poor movement strategy. Uh, And that was generally people who were not very mobile. Um, Mm. So that was, and then the single leg squat was actually very similar, except the hard part about the single leg squat is Many people who did well with both legs on the floor, when you ask them to stand on one leg and do the same test, arms above the head, parallel, standing on one leg, watching for all those substitution patterns, uh, many of them who did the double leg squat well fell apart when they did single leg squat. Uh, Their movement pattern was very poor. They didn't have the strength, stability, coordination in one leg, bearing the whole body weight. And... I'm guessing the, so the arms need to stay like fingers pointing towards the ceiling the entire time. I could imagine a lot of people squat and their 
their arms just come down. They could probably try and get a little bit more movement in their squat if their arms came down. Yes. Um, I, I could imagine that would be quite a, a, a sort of compensation sort of movement as well. Is there, was there kind of like a, a pass rate for how low they needed to squat? Did they need to go to like, did thighs need to reach parallel to the floor or yes. um, any sort yeah. of benchmarks? Great question. There? They had to get thighs parallel to the floor if they could. And, and many could not uh, mm, get anywhere near that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, so, I, I definitely couldn't now. Uh, uh, maybe maybe back in the day, but not now. I'll have to give it a try. And this comes back to uh, with choosing the bodyweight exercises. Like, oh, the listeners could try this as well. They don't need any equipment. They don't need any specific. No, just um, a mirror. Specific, uh, yeah, yeah, a, a mirror, mirror or a video camera that they can look at later. The other thing you want to mm. look at is, that which we saw, was... When the knee comes to the midline, the upper body has to rotate toward the knee that's collapsing, right? So that was a very interesting Mm. thing. So let me say that again. When you don't have enough motor control or strength and your knee sort of buckles toward the midline, so towards the other leg, there is a compensatory rotation of the trunk toward that buckling knee. When your hands are above your head in parallel, you can actually see the entire body rotate and the arms move so that they're no longer parallel. And then we would go, oh, okay, this was a real subtle sort of knee thing that happened. But wow, look at the rotation of the arms above the head. And so these are, again, easy things for you to do looking in a mirror, um, videotaping yourself. Yeah. And uh, so feet needed to be shoulder width apart and the toes needed to be facing completely straight. They couldn't be turned out. They could be turned degree. out slightly, but not, not a lot. It was okay if they were straight or slightly turned out less, maybe 10 degrees or less turned out. We, we would mm. allow that. Okay. Wow. So what do you, what, what conclusions can you draw? Like if people are poor in these tests and they're, getting injured or more increasing their likelihood of developing an injury, an overuse injury in the future. What, what conclusions can you draw? What sort of, what do you suspect's happening with the runner with a poor control? That's like, why are they getting injured? I guess is a better answer. Oh yeah. Question. So, so I can just tell you from, from 31 years as a physiotherapist, right? What, what do I see in these people who move poorly? Uh, probably the number one, thing I see in distance runners is gluteus medius weakness. So that if you stood on one leg and lifted your leg straight out to the side, that's what the gluteus medius does. It does hip abduction. But the thing is, is when you're standing on that leg, it is the job of the gluteus medius to keep that knee from buckling to the midline. So what we would see is either poor strength or poor motor control. And I can tell you in runners, there's two kind of major muscle groups at the hip. One extends the hip and distance runners were amazingly strong at that. Amazingly strong. So their gluteus maximus, the big muscle that you see that's your rear end, very strong there. And then the gluteus medius was phenomenally weak. And that's because when you do a sport, if you're not careful, when you do a sport where the sole direction is running straight ahead, you develop the gluteus maximus 
And the gluteus medius is more active when you're cutting or changing direction. Or in a runner, you have to be very diligent about making sure that you strengthen that. And that gives the pelvis stability and gives the knee stability. So that's the number one thing is that gluteus medius weakness. The other thing that I saw is, is a lack of ankle mobility. And when you talk to them, they said, oh yeah, I've sprained my ankle several times on a run. Uh, and so if you run out of, if you run out of the ability to flex your ankle during a squat, um, and the easy way to test this, by the way, is you, if you put a board underneath your heels and all of a sudden your squat gets better, it's because you have poor ankle mobility, mm -hmm. right? And so if you run out of room in your ankle, what happens is you pronate your foot, which basically means collapse your arch. Well, when you collapse your arch, your knee also collapses to the midline. So in other words, when you look at the knee, it's either a distal cause, ankle mobility, or it's a proximal cause, weakness or motor control, poor motor control based on gluteus medius. Is That's what I saw most of the time, 90% of the time. Yeah. And I was trying to look up just as you're answering that, there's um, some work from Chris Brammer in terms of uh, he observed a lot of contralateral hip drop in runners or in injured runners and found that that was a significant um, finding when it came to, I think he said every one degree of contralateral hip drop was a, a link to like three times risk of injury. I'll have to look it up, but um, seems to be very similar to what you're finding in this particular study. Yes. I, yeah, I think, I think we're, I mean, certainly from uh, contact sports and cutting sports, right? There is, there is, seems to be a strong relationship between that knee buckling to the midline and injury. Um, hmm. and you can, you can test it with what we learn to do is test it with ever increasing difficulty. So this is after the study, because what we would see is, okay, someone who does well with a single leg squat, we would push them to the next level and we would say, okay, do a straight ahead hop test. And many of them would fail that test. But if they were good at straight ahead hop tests, we would have them do a medial hop test. And then very often athletes who did great at double leg, great at single leg, great at a straightforward hop, as soon as we had them hop in a different direction, so immediately, their entire knee would buckle to the midline. And you knew they were, they were still not at high speed dynamic movement. They still did not have the strength and stability that they needed to move well. And of course, running mm -hmm. is, a high speed dynamic skill. Uh, it's not a slow motion activity. Yeah. I just pulled up that, that Chris Brammer paper now and the title was, is there pathological gait associated with the common soft tissue injury, running injuries? And it said like, importantly, every 1% increase in pelvic drop, there was an 80% increase in the odds of being classified as injured. So they had injured runners mm -hmm. run pain-free on a treadmill and um, witness those sort of things. And the same thing, contralateral hip drop, they said that there was a, um, I think the knees, like the internal rotation of the, the femur or mm -hmm. internal rotation mm -hmm. of the knees, like right. those sort of characteristics. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's always nice to sort of find other publications as well that I guess match uh, your findings uh, just to help with, I guess, the confidence and I guess the theory out there. 
Um, no, you're you, exactly you mentioned right a little because, bit. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that goes back to what we said at the beginning, right? When you say the FMS in the beginning was a, a prediction of injury, well, you want to have more than your group do the study, right? <clears throat> if Because then people doubt your results. But if multiple groups are finding this, the chances of it being um, cor a correct finding, a non-errant mm. finding are, are good. So sorry to interrupt you. Please continue. Yeah, I was just going to mention like you... <sighs> it's important to highlight limitations with studies as well. And every publication, every study has them. Um, can you identify any major sort of limitations with this particular study that we might need to be aware of? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, again, 2012 is a long time ago now, right? So think of where we, where we have come with wearable sensors. There are things, there are watches you wear on your wrist now that are more sophisticated than biomechanics labs. 10 years ago. Um, and so the major weakness of this was the study design, which is anytime you test an athlete in the preseason and you wait an entire season. And again, for, for us, our distance athletes were in season year round. I mean, they went from indoor to outdoor to cross country seasons. So they're the only athletes, our distance athletes were the only ones who never had an off season. When you wait that long for an injury to happen, you really can't use the word predict. You can't say that a poor test predicted injury. You can only say that a poor test was associated with injury three months, six months, one year later. So that's, that's, a, that's a weakness in the study. Um, prediction of injury has come a long way, and, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, but already... Like within five years, I knew I would do a different screen with people. Mm. So not necessarily a prediction, but just a preseason correlation mm -hmm. would be better defined. Yes, it, it's not. Um, it's not as strong a word on purpose. Uh, mm. It just means yeah. that people who got injured scored poorly. It doesn't mean that the fact that you scored poorly predicted you were going to get injured. That's a pretty bold statement when you look at all that happens to an athlete. I mean, think, think especially in a, in a college athlete, uh, of all the things that change in six months or a year, right? You're, you're under lots of stress. Your parents break up. Your girlfriend or boyfriend breaks up with you. Your... Um, overtraining and you get another injury uh you know so there's so many things that happen during that time it's just not a very strong statement to stay to say correlated with and so every you know all learning is a journey so i'm, I'm already down a different path with a great colleague of mine ben stern and some others about hey where can we really predict injury and so we're now we're working on on actual prediction Right. Looking forward to hearing some developments in that area. Uh, I had here particular like study takeaways or like practical lessons, takeaways the runners could, um, could get from this particular paper. Obviously that finding the, the tests themselves that the double leg, single leg squat, looking at the quality is a really nice, um, takeaway for someone to do is there anything else that you maybe want to highlight to the runners or maybe get them um 
to take away from this these findings? Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm going to give you takeaways, not only from this study, but then takeaways of, you know, the continued journey of discovery. Like, so what have I learned since 2012, which is a lot, right? Um, because I'm in the business of trying to learn more so that I can help runners in a better fashion. Um, so, so number one, the way you move matters. So you should look at how you move and it's simple to look at yourself in a mirror or you can get more sophisticated help by going to a, um, uh, somebody who understands biomechanics or a physiotherapist who understands biomechanics and have your m movement analyzed. Um, number two, physical isn't the only thing that matters. There's a whole range of psychological barrier, um, variables that probably are associated, not probably, they are associated with whether you get injured. So in other words, um, if you are feeling, and, and this is really about paying attention to yourself and paying attention to your body, be alert, be aware. Because I think we get, as runners, you're so used to pain. Because very often when you're training and you're pushing yourself hard, the training is actually painful because, you know, you're, you're bound to push yourself. The cardiovascular system is straining because that's what you're doing on purpose. Um, but you do have to pay attention to things like if you are feeling chronically fatigued, you are headed down the path to injury. You're more likely to be injured. If you are feeling stressed more stress than usual. If you are feeling like your sleep quality is starting to deteriorate, whether because you're overtraining or because, hey, look, you know, you've been to, a, uh, this is my, my son recently, like for a while there, all the kids his age were getting married. So like six weekends in a row, um, they're going to somebody's party for their wedding and kind of, you know, tearing the roof off, right? And then... <laughs> So, so too much alcohol, not enough sleep, out too late, you're at greater risk for injury if your sleep quality is poor, if your nutrition is bad, if you are noticing great muscle soreness. It is not a weakness to say this is going to be an easy day when you're experiencing all of those things, plus you have the addition of the things you wear on your wrist that tell you how did you sleep, what's your heart rate, what's your resting heart rate, what's your um, uh, hydration level. So there's lots of items out there. Granted, the accuracy of them is still improving, but they are still good enough if you are paying attention to say, okay, wow, so my... Um, my energy level is lower. I feel more fatigued. I'm definitely more stressed in my life or because of work. My sleep quality is suffering and I'm super sore after training lately. That should be, that should set off an alarm bell that you need to back down a little bit in your training, not because you're weak or not because you're not mentally strong enough, but because your system is very vulnerable at that time. And so you do not push yourself to your maximum workout when your system is vulnerable. That's how you get injured. Mm. I have this uh, tightrope walker analogy that I'll share with you after this recording because people have listened to episodes on that. But I wanted to get your thoughts on your the number one thing that you said there is the way you move matters. And <clears throat> there are some 
uh, there are some theories out there that movement doesn't really matter because your body will just get used to it if you train properly. Like if you, if you just don't have any abrupt changes in training, Mm -hmm. you can have a narrow step width or you could have a internal rotation or you could have a mild hip drop here and there. And if you train within the right parameters and you allow your body to adapt to that, the body would just get used to running in that particular way. And I kind of had a theory is yes, that it is true, but gives you very little wiggle room for training changes like for load changes you could probably get away with it but you have to be super careful if you elicit a few of those particular movement patterns and behaviors but i want to get your particular thoughts around that idea and whether you're thinking something different yeah no i i could not agree with your theory more um i so uh, you know as a as somebody who does research we always talk about well here's the value whatever that value is and here's the confidence interval around that. So I think your theory is is dead on. I have a similar theory in that um, we have seen, I have seen some people win the New York Marathon whose movement I thought was rather abysmal. Um, that's testament to some other things. Like you can't, you can't, you can't discard genetics as a as a as a thing that contributes to your ability to compete and win. Um, as, lo- as well as your belief in yourself. So there's all these psychosocial variables too, right? Um, but your body will be, that person who moves that way, I believe has a very narrow confidence interval. And it is not difficult to push them from a healthy body state into a body state that probably means they're going to get injured. Whereas someone who moves well, that confidence interval is a little larger you can get away with more perhaps that's what i think Mm, yeah i think we're on the same wavelength there um i want to ask like just straight up nice and simple as a question can we predict injury uh based on your research based on everything you found how strong or how confidently can you answer this particular question when it comes to running related injuries can we do some things or can we have confidence with predicting injuries? Yes. So what a great question. Uh, do I believe we can predict running injuries? Yes. Do I believe that technology is allow, allowing us to get closer and closer to say more certain things? Yes. If you ask me today, as we sit here on your podcast talking about when I look at you, how confident, and I gather all this data about muscle soreness and stress and fatigue and all of that stuff, how confident am I that you're going to get injured based on the data that I'm gathering? 30 to 50% today. Mm. Okay. That's pretty good. Uh, um, better than what, definitely better than what we've had in the past. And so it seems like you need more data, you need more accurate data, and you need to explore a whole bunch of different, like you said, psychosocial recovery, mm-hmm. training loads, um, behavior, mechanics, thoughts, um, all those domains in order to compile it all together to get that, that level of prediction. 
Yes, you, you are dead on, and that's the take-home message, and that's what researchers are working on right now, because as you might guess, there are billions of dollars tied up in being able to predict injury, right? If you knew that the greatest runner in the world who was about to run the marathon might get injured this weekend, but next weekend would be able to run better with less chance of injury, you might say, look, I, I know that the Boston Marathon is an important showcase, but you shouldn't run it. Um, and and what, a, what a valuable piece of information. And now change that to what are the big money sports in the world, right? So, so soccer or, or football, uh, American football, rugby. And if you can start telling those coaches, you need to sit your star player this weekend because they're more likely to be injured. As you might guess, there's billions of dollars. And, and we have been waiting for technology to catch up for what I said in the beginning was the design was flawed. You can't do a test and then wait six months and then and then draw anything more than a loose correlation, right? What is important though is if you collect real-time data and lots of it, you can analyze that data to be better at predicting. And you know, your listeners will go, "What? Well, you know, okay." A, a very a very common example of that is if you know we get we get um, hurricanes all the time here in the states that come off the eastern seaboard. And if you look at how complex of a model that is, that is very difficult to predict where in the United States those things are going to hit a week from now. But when you collect lots and lots and lots of real-time data, you're almost certain where it's going to hit within 24 hours. And that, so that's the value of those things you wear on your wrist, those, those data collectors that you have, and then paying attention to them. Yeah. And in terms of like takeaway lessons for the listeners, I think when you talk about all these multitudes, this multifactorial approach to injury prevention and predicting future injury, if it all seems a little bit too overwhelming, um, I think some practical takeaways would be, okay, let's focus on some main components, Mm -hmm. that being like training loads and abrupt changes in training. Uh, but once you've kind of nailed that in, that's not too overwhelming, then you can move to the next thing, which mm-hmm. might be, depending on your mileage, might be adequate recovery. So sleep, nutrition, hydration, mm-hmm. um, stress levels and analyzing that. And then once you're kind of comfortable with that and you, you, you've got your head around it, then maybe moving to the next domain, which might be strength training or making sure your hip has good control, mobility uh, running technique, those sorts of things. And then just moving on. And so you're, you're taking in little chunks at a time instead of it being so overwhelming that you just right. go out and train willy nilly without any care in the world. Right. Yeah. I, th- I think you're dead on. And I think that's why you have a coach, uh, who can say, this is what we're going to focus on. And, you know, runners almost more than any other sport are really good at cataloging things. Uh, I did this investment run on this day, and this was my time per mile or per, per kilometer, right? And so runners are excel at that. So the, the, what you need to start doing then is paying attention to not only not only mileage and distance and how fast you ran that distance, but um, you know if you're suffering from anxiety and depression and you haven't had that treated, 
that's a factor in whether you get injured or not. And so you, you have to take care of that. So the athlete looking at yourself as a whole human being and not a runner is probably pretty important. It's, it's more than just physical variables, although they're important. There, there are a bunch of other ones that I think a good coach, someone like yourself who is working with somebody can say, yeah, let's, let's look at this injury that, that you got here recently. And let, let's examine some of these things a couple of weeks before. Where were, well, you know, where were you mentally? How sore were you? How fatigued were you? Was your sleep level good? And what you'll find out is they'll say things like, ooh, you know what? I had business in the States. And so I, you know, I flew across several time zones, barely got adjusted there, flew back home, ate airplane food. And so, you know, and, and, all of a sudden, something that you just assumed was an unobserved part of your life became very important and why you got injured. Uh, and that mm. awareness is very important for your group to start thinking about all those things. Awareness, definitely, because we do encounter those moments in life. If you're traveling, moving house, um, you have like family dramas, all that stress of work, promotions, you know, you need to look at yourself as a whole and not just analyze purely the running components. Um, so very good to point out. I did want to, to flip the focus slightly and see if, if we're talking about injury prediction or injury prevention, is there any early signs that a runner could pay attention to that might lead to an injury if unaccounted for or ignored? Um, just want to get your thoughts on if there were any particular early signs of injury and uh, what you can impart on the listeners. Yeah. So this, so this is early, early data, but we sort of think that when you combine things like fatigue, stress, sleep quality, and muscle soreness, if you examine those four things very closely and all of those are bad, uh, an injury is coming for you. Uh, you said fatigue, sleep quality, muscle soreness. Um, and um, so fatigue, stress, sleep quality, muscle soreness, mm -hmm. level of stress in your life. So the, those things, and you'll notice that a couple of them are psychosocial. A couple of them have to do with your physical feeling. Um, so yeah, those, those tend to be the ones that you can monitor pretty easily. And if those are off, you, you are headed down a path where you're more likely to get injured. Hmm. I'm definitely seeing the muscle soreness and the fatigue side of things definitely changes your running mechanics as well. Like you're hitting the ground slightly harder and your stance time is slightly um slightly longer as well you're just like you're slapping the ground and you're a little bit less efficient which yeah. like significantly spikes your training loads as well and that's just looking at the pure ground reaction force side mm -hmm. of things it's not even looking at your ability to recover or handle tissue loads once the running is done once your body gets into that recovery mode and can effectively sort of negotiate that but uh definitely and i've seen people recovering from injury if uh, if they avoid running fatigue, they can manage loads quite a lot more. They can, if they integrate some like walking intervals within their running, 
and they're avoiding that fatigued kind of onset, like the the onset of their symptoms um, come on either a lot later or not at all, or you know less severe. And so, even just that aspect alone, I'm seeing a big difference with the runners I'm working with. Um, but yeah, then you're looking at sleep quality and stress. I've got so many podcast episodes on the importance of stress management and recovery, uh, and sleep for recovery. And so, yeah, if we, someone we- is if someone's say falling short on these, if they are getting muscle soreness, they are feeling fatigued, their sleep's not great or their stress management's um, not up to scratch as what they're used to. What do you recommend? What should they do? Are they backing off their training loads in these particular until these areas are, are built back up? Uh, yes. Uh, they should back off their training loads un- until these areas uh, come back into normal for them, wherever that happens to be. And, you know, we don't know what normal is for lots of people. I have, uh, I have friends and a father-in-law who's normal throughout his life is to sleep four hours a night. Um, I have a daughter who needs 10 hours of sleep a night. And, and if I sleep more than eight, I feel worse. But eight hours seems to be my magic number. So I think, I think, you, need to, I think you need to be wise about your training, which is what is the goal of that? What is the goal ultimately of running? And, uh, and I would say yes to compete, but for many of your non-competitive folks, it is, it is to be healthier and happier. And so if you're out there pushing yourself every day, even though you're exhausted and your muscles are sore, you can't tell me you're in, enjoying running. You've taken away the joy of it and you're ignoring it be, because of some attachment to I don't know what some attachment to you have to be tough and you have to endure. It's not. And, and, and I would tell you, if you are somebody who feels like they train well and then they get injured and then they train well and then they get injured. And this is happening to you where you're getting injured two, three, four times a year. You're probably not paying attention to those non training variables. You're probably paying very close attention to load. And, and how fast you're doing things and how far you're running, but you're probably not aware at all or in touch with your human system and how it feels and whether you're sleeping well and whether you're stressed and whether you're happy or not happy, right? And I, I, I mean, I will always tell my runners and they look at me like I'm crazy sometimes, but that's okay because I'm of an age where I might be. Um, <laughs> so so I, I will ask them, what's the last time you smiled when you were running? It's the last time you got that euphoric feeling of, man, it's a beautiful day and and I'm fit and I can push my body and I'm running. What a magnificent moment to be alive, right? Does that happen to you or do you just go, are you the, are you staring at your watch the whole time? (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's so, it's so well put. I'm glad that you, you talk about that because so many runners when they're injured, they just want to, they're like, I'd give anything just to be pain-free. If I was pain-free running whatever distance, I'd love life. I'd be so happy. This is just what I want to achieve. And then they get there and they, they're not really happy. They they want to push for the next thing. They want to push to sure. the next thing. It's like, yeah, I'm running pain-free. I said that, but I'm not running like 10Ks. That's really where I want to be. And then when they get to 10Ks, it's like, yeah, but I'm really slow with my 10K. Like I really want to improve that. And it's just like the next thing that's we're, we are quite harsh on ourselves sometimes and 
I think um, the, a classic trait of being a runner is the ability to self-motivate, push, himse- push themselves, have the next goal, the next goal, the next goal. Um, but exactly right, if you're not enjoying the process, what's the point in doing it? You need to be happy and healthy. And if if that's not achieved, then you, you're just not training with the right purpose, the right method. And if you are getting injured over and over, it, it might be some sort of self-sabotage you know, training philosophy that you have, maybe yeah. just keep going out too hard because you continue to push yourself. And if you were wise about your training, like you say, and you listen to your body and maybe your body's telling you it's time to have a deload week or rest, or maybe we shouldn't go out that hard, but you're just driven and your, your um, internal circuits are just constantly trained yourself as, as like a habit to continue pushing yourself um, maybe it's worth a change. Maybe it's worth reassessing and making that change in not only your training philosophy, but you know how you approach it and the taking that that happy, healthy approach rather than performance grinding yourself in type of way. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well said, Eric. Is there any other final takeaways or anything else that uh, we haven't discussed yet, or? final messages for the listeners as we close up? Yeah, I would say only the, the last thing might be that um, you should not look at cross training as a weakness. Um, there is a reason we see these faulty movement patterns develop in every sport, but in running specifically, um, you, you shouldn't be afraid to take the load off. You shouldn't be afraid um, to, to go play tennis that day. Um, you should do some things that probably vary the fact that you're running straight ahead all the time um, or you know your, your big break from yourself is to swim which is unidirectional <laughs> doesn't involve any change of direction except for flipping at one end of the pool and swimming to the other or I hear runners do aqua jogging which is unidirectional uh, so I, I would I would say it, it is not a weakness to not go run that day, to have fun mm. doing something else that day is probably okay. And to vary your training is probably very good for the way that you will move and you actually probably run better because you move better. Well said. Eric, I want to thank you for your time and for your knowledge sharing this all out to the, the podcast listeners, but um, just as importantly, if not more importantly, thanks for your c- time commitment to all the research that you do and the dedication that you put to try and come up with the answers that we're desperately trying to seek. And you're helping a lot of runners and a lot of athletes in the process. So um, thank you for all that you do. And thanks for coming on today. Thank you. And, and my pleasure is always. And also thank you because things like Research doesn't get disseminated very well. It takes a long time, right? But podcasts, actually, we reach far more people than a research publication. So your ability to spread that word impacts, uh, with, without any, without any uh, criticism from me, impacts far more people than my research ever would. So thanks for letting me be here to talk about it. It will reach a larger audience because of that. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, 
who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.